my Govanin. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And recently on Twitter, a couple of the more interesting people in the Tolkienverse, that being Helena Lonstein, or the Clueless Fangirl, and Tony Mead, who is a regular on Corey Olson's Exploring the Lord of the Rings, and also who makes music, sometimes Tolkien-related, were talking about a couple of reveals that were put out recently for the Amazon Rings of Power show, and specifically this one image of a young boy holding the hilt shard of a black sword, which has previously been shown, the sword. Um, and there was some speculation as to whether this was Gurthong, the sword that Turin Turumbar wielded. And Tony Mead, who hadn't read the Children of Hurin story in quite some time, said, well, but isn't that supposed to be used to kill Morgoth in the final battle? Wouldn't it be kind of hard if it was broken? Forgetting that it had, in fact, be, been broken. And so I commented and said, well, Gorthong was, in fact, broken when Turin fell on it after he stabbed himself. And then as an aside, I mentioned, which actually makes it an interesting parallel to Narsil. And then the more I got to thinking about it, the more I realized there's actually a lot of parallels between these two swords. And so I wanted to go over some of those and explore, you know, kind of how this is one of those examples where Tolkien really likes to use the same kinds of things over and over again in really different ways for different purposes. And so even when he's copying himself, he never feels stale. And, it, you know, you don't really even necessarily notice it until you look at it carefully. So let's take a look at what the histories of these two swords are, how they're similar, and how they're different. And maybe even we can draw some interesting inferences from this information. So the first thing to note about both swords is that they are made by very famous craftsmen. The sword Gurthang, which originally is named Anglachel, is forged by Eol, the Dark Elf, who is one of the greatest elves of the Grey Elves, and forges two such swords out of a meteorite, and both of them are black. And they're of questionable, mm, I hate to say morality because you don't think swords can be moral, but Melian, the queen of Doriath, seems to think that some of the malice of Aeol, who is not a great character, resides in the sword still. Narsil, on the other hand, was crafted by Telkar, the dwarven smith of Nogorod, who also forged Angris, the knife that cut the Silmaril out of Morgoth's crown, and the dragon helm of Dor Loman, which Turin also ends up wielding. So, both of these weapons are forged by very, very famous and well-respected craftsmen. And that's just the start. We also have several other things that are very similar. For one, they both get renamed after they are reforged. Now, you may be thinking, wait, Gorthong doesn't get reforged. Yes, it does, actually. Originally, when Beleg takes Anglachel from King Thingol, when he first attempts to find Turin after he leaves Doriath, he takes the sword, and eventually he uses it to cut Turin's bonds when he's rescued from the orcs. And when he does this, he pricks Turin. Turin takes the sword, and he kills Beleg. Now, it's not really clear what this means, but Gwyndor, after he, you know, rescues Turin from his, basically, insanity from killing his own friend Beleg, 
mentions that the, the sword seems to mourn the death of Beleg. And when they come to Nargothrond eventually, it's noted that the sword has become dull, which is kind of a strange thing to happen to a sword made by a famous craftsman. And I suspect maybe these two things are related. It's as if the sword has decided to, like, lose its own sharpness because it killed Beleg. And, of course, this will come up later. This idea that it has sentience comes up, you know, later when Turin actually speaks to the sword and Beleg says, I mean, the, the sword says, yeah, I'll kill you in vengeance for Beleg's death, basically. Uh, so there's some level of consciousness to this sword, which is really bizarre. That's one of the things that's definitely not the same between the two swords. But when they get to Nargothrond, it's noted that it's it's not sharp anymore, and they reforge it. It doesn't just say sharpen it. It does actually say reforge. What exactly that means is not 100% clear, but it is reforged. And when it's reforged, Turin renames it from Anglachel to Gurthang, meaning the Wand of Death. So it gets renamed when it's reforged. And interestingly enough, that happens when it kind of technically takes on a new owner. Now, the sword Narsil, of course, was broken under Elendil when he was killed by Sauron. And it just broke underneath him when he fell. And when it was broken, it passed down the line, you know, many, many generations until finally it comes to Aragorn, who, you know, has it reforged when it seems from prophecy and other things that the time of, you know, the end of the War of the Ring and everything else is going to come to a close, and therefore the heir of Isildur is going to take his place again. And he renames it Anduril, Flame of the West, whereas before it had just been a combination of Nar and Sil, which is just roots for sun and moon. So both of these are, you know, renamed when they're reforged by new owners, you know, who take them up in kind of a new way. So that's another interesting parallel between the two weapons. A final one we can note, and this one is a little bit, you know, a little bit tricky because... One of these things never really made it into the final version of a story, but in some early versions of the Turin Turumbar story, the there's a prophecy that at the final battle, Turin will actually give Morgoth his death blow with his black sword, Gurthon. Similarly, Narsil, or the shards thereof, were used to cut the ring from Sauron's hand. So both swords, at least depending on which version of the story you take, are used to do something, you know, to actually harm a Dark Lord, which is rather significant. Now, the timing's a little bit different, obviously. Gorthong is prophesied to do this at the end in the last battle, after, of course, it's already been through who knows what, and maybe even reforged again. Narsil does this before it's ever, uh, well, right after it's broken, and when it's a shard, and, of course, as a whole sword, it was used in part to defeat Sauron in the first place. And unlike Gurthong, which is prophesied to be the death blow of Morgoth, Narsil doesn't really kill Sauron permanently. Or, you know, you could say that there is a little bit of a parallel there, though, because in my not too, you know, my recent video about who actually killed Sauron, there's reason to believe that Isildur cutting the ring from his finger is actually kind of what finished him off. Uh, so you can go watch that for my explanation there. I'll link to that in the description below. So there's another interesting parallel where these swords both get used 
to do, you know, ending deeds in some sense to dark lords. One of them being prophesied to be in the future, one of them being in the remote past when we're actually reading the story in which we get this information. But that's where the similarities mostly end. Uh, the similarities are mostly about kind of accidents of history. The dissimilarities go to a lot of different things. For one, aesthetically, Gurthong, or Anglachel, is a black sword, and it's forged from a meteorite. Narsil, or Anduril, when it's reforged, is a very bright sword, and it's kind of the point, right? I mean, it's reflecting or shining the light of the, the sun and the moon, and when it's reforged, it even has seven stars etched into it, so it's, you know, you've even got another reference to a light source there, and it shines whenever it's, you know, pulled from its sheath every time, so there's a very light and dark thing going on, and it's really interesting, too, that though both are made by a famous craftsman, one is made by an elf, and one is made by a dwarf. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Telkar as a as a character. We know some of the things that he made, but that's about as far as our knowledge of him goes, and that doesn't tell us a whole lot. But we have no reason to think that he was in any way a bad character. I mean, he's making some really great stuff and sharing it, or at least selling it, you know, given that he's a dwarf, that seems maybe the more likely option, with other peoples in Middle-earth. And, you know, all these famous things that he made end up in the hands of elves and dwarves, or, I mean, elves and men, at some point or other. And so, you know, there's some indication, at least, that he is at least on copacetic terms with everybody. Ael the Dark Elf, on the other hand for an elf, is a very unfriendly sort of person. He actually keeps to himself a lot. He's not really happy with much of anybody. He especially hates the Noldor, uh, who tend to be friends with dwarves, ironically. Uh, and he, you know, he keeps to himself, and he doesn't really like a whole lot of people. I mean, he just stays away from them. And he's kind of a bad dude. He just, you know, I mean... Uh, Almost uniquely among elves, other than Feanor, he just seems to be cut from a bad piece of cloth. So the two craftsmen involved, to the extent that we can guess anything about Telkar, seem to be rather opposite in their their mood, their you know personalities, whatever. Um, we also don't really know a whole lot of anything that Aeol made besides swords, whereas Telkar seems to have had pretty wide variety. He makes armor, he makes swords, he makes knives... You know, so, I mean, it's interesting, you know, we don't really know a whole lot about what Ael made other than the two swords that we that we learn about specifically. Perhaps he did work on armor and some other stuff, but he's known for these two swords, whereas Telkar is known for both a sword and a knife and a helmet, which helmets serve defensive purposes, not just offensive. So there's some significant differences aesthetically. There's some significant differences in who made them. And this goes back again to what Melian said, that the malice of the maker resides in Anglachel. So it's like the, you know, Aeol's not-so-great personality is somehow bound up in the sword that he made. Whereas we never get anything like that out of Narsil on Duril. Similarly, we can also say that the ways that these swords are used are 
very different over time. One of them, of course, basically just becomes an heirloom. And it, I mean, it's used as a as a real weapon, of course, but it's for most of its history that we know of, because we all we actually don't know how it came to be in Numenor and eventually into the hands of Elendil. But we know from most of its history from that point onward, it's just an heirloom. Anglachel or Gurthong is never that, as far as we can tell. You know, it's you know it's kept in Thingol's hoard of arms and armor. And it's given to Beleg at his request, and he goes and he uses it, and then it passes to Turin, and then when he falls on it and kills himself, it breaks, and then the sword is buried with him. That sword ain't doing anything else for ever, until apparently the final battle. So there's you know, there's almost this sense that the, the swords are very different. One is worth keeping because of its history, and the other one is best left alone because of its history. And, of course, there's also the very significant difference that Narsil never talks, uh, whereas Anglakel slash Gurthong apparently does, uh, which, you know, questionable whether that's Turin hearing him own, his, his own mental state having probably gone completely nutters after finding out all the truth about who his sister is and all the other things. You know, but Narsil or Onduril, there's no indication that it has any kind of sentience or whatever, which may also just be related to the fact that there's no, you know, unlike with Aeol, whose malice resides in the sword, that's not the case with anything that Telkar made, seemingly. So, elves do have a capacity to pass, you know, their thought and their, you know, whatever into the things that they make, so... I wouldn't put it past it for that sword to actually be talking to Turin in the moment right before Turin does himself in. There's no indication that Narsil or Anduril ever does that. So, I mean, that's another really big difference between the two. So there's a lot of differences, but a lot of similarities between these two swords. And it, again, this goes back to the issue of how Tolkien can reuse elements of things that he's done before and this, of course, like when you go to the original stuff he started to write, a lot of what he was writing was pulled from older stories that he knew. This is kind of the genius of Tolkien, right? He takes things that are, you know, already out there, but he recombines them, repurposes them, puts them in different contexts, and turns it into something that, you know, unless you really, really know your stuff and you're paying attention, you wouldn't necessarily know was recycled. Uh, famously, of course, we have examples like this in The Hobbit where Bilbo goes down and he takes a cup from Smaug's hoard. This is directly pulled from the Beowulf story. You know, you've got a lot of things like that. That's just one of the more famous examples. But tons of what he wrote was pulled in some form or other from older stories and, you know, th this idea of what he called the, the soup of story. It's like all these authors have contributed over time to the soup and, you know, it's your own story that you make is still pulled from that soup. It's just you add your own flavor to it, you know. And this is the way Tolkien saw what he was doing. And this is, you know, kind of what everybody does. Because there's nothing truly original anymore. It's impossible. It's all been done in some form or fashion. It's just a matter of how you redo it. And Tolkien... Tolkien's genius is in being able to refashion a lot of these things in a way that 
is both really compelling, but also seemingly new, even though a lot of it is reused material in some way. And this is true even when he reuses his own material. He reuses his own material all the time. The Aragorn Arwen story is a reused Baron and Luthien story. And the Baron and Luthien story is itself just a, a reused version of, you know, a slightly recast version of many other, you know, forbidden romances that have been told throughout history. So, but you don't necessarily see it that way. The cool thing about the Aragorn and Arwen story it's a little bit weaker because we only get it in kind of an appendix and therefore we don't see it you know in its in its own story so to speak so it's a little bit weaker of an example but we don't necessarily think of it in terms of just being a rehash of Baron and Luthien because it's very kind of explicitly a an intentional historical parallel in that it is historically recapitulating it for the purposes of kind of the grand scheme of history because Aragorn and Arwen are carrying forward in the same way that Elrond did in the old versions of the Silmarillion before the Lord of the Rings was even a thought in his head carrying on the memory of the older days and carrying on you know the blood of both men elves and even Maya because Melian was a Maya into the future. And so through these characters, those things are passed forward into history. So we get things like this where he reuses his own material, but even then he recasts it in ways that make it different. And this is why Narsil never stood out to me as a parallel to Gorthong until recently, because he does change so much about it that even though they have very striking parallels, they're not obviously just the same thing reused because he's, yes, he's reusing the idea of a sword that gets broken and reforged and renamed, but he's doing it in such a completely different context in, in a sword that has a very different history and has a, you know, it's, a, it's almost the opposite history in some ways that you don't necessarily pick up on it until, you know, somebody starts talking about it and says, well, you know, that wouldn't that make it hard for it to, work if it was broken it's like but yeah but it was broken just like nars oh wait a minute that wow <laughs> you, know, you know you something sets your train of thought going and you realize all of a sudden there's this really cool connection that i never even noticed before and that's how good tolkien is at reusing his own material he'll reuse his own material and you won't even necessarily notice it even when you've been reading him for years like i have so it's just really cool to see how he can do those kinds of things and with, you know, just complete and utter disregard for being seen as a copyist because he isn't really copying himself, but he kind of is, and yet he does it in such a way that you'd never, you wouldn't even know it. You, I mean, you just, you really have to pay attention to see these things. And so it's really cool when you come across examples like this and the stories abound with it. Now, is there any significance to the fact that these two are the same? And this is where I think a lot of people might go wrong in looking at the parallels. You know, Corey Olson has made this point in many of his different uh, productions. I hate to use that word, but I can't think of a better one. You know, exploring the Lord of the Rings and all the different things that he's done over the years as the Tolkien professor. One of the things he talks about is we shouldn't be asking 
why did Tolkien do this in the sense of what was in his brain when he was, you know, making this conscious decision or whatever. It's like you want to know why he does it for the story, maybe, and, and you want to know what significance it has for the story, but you don't want to be thinking in terms of what purpose did Tolkien have in reusing this idea of the broken sword that gets reforged and renamed? Like, is there a significance to that? You know, there might be, and sometimes the evidence might be strong enough that we can actually kind of speculate about that, but we don't want to do it as a rule because a lot of the time it really is just kind of reusing really cool motifs from stories in a new context that makes it work in a different way for the purposes of a different story. And this is kind of the same thing as not reading in allegory to The Lord of the Rings. It's like allegory as... Tolkien would describe it as the purpose of domination of the author rather than the freedom of the reader in kind of applying what he sees in the story to other things outside the story. Tolkien isn't trying to impose some specific idea on the reader. And so when he reuses the motif of a broken sword which is reforged and which is renamed, he's not doing it to make a point. No pun intended because swords have points. He's not doing it for that reason. He's doing it because it's a really nice motif that he likes and which is a really cool thing to put in a story. You know, and that's one of the things that he says in one of his letters. He says it's the Lord of the Rings is not about anything other than itself. It's just a good story. That's why it exists. That was always his point, was just to make a good story. So when we look at the way that this is reused, this motif we might be tempted to think in terms of why is Tolkien doing this? Why is the idea of a broken sword important? Why, why, why? And it's like, don't ask. It's not important in that way, probably. You might be able to, you know, if you really sat down and analyzed it with a really good story maker's mind, think of ways in which the idea of the broken sword is a, a very important motif for storytelling for certain reasons... But that's not going to tell you much about what Tolkien was specifically trying to do in, a, in some specific context. And I'll give you an example, because the way that these two swords are used are actually kind of opposite, like I mentioned before, because of their history being so weirdly parallel but opposite. The brokenness of, of Narsil, which gets reforged as Anduril, is kind of a symbolic representation in the story of the broken line of kings of the north, which is remade, reforged, whatever you want to call it, in the fact that Aragorn now becomes the king both of Gondor and of Arnor. So the kingship is restored in the same way that the sword itself is restored. The brokenness of Anglachel, or Gurthang, and its reforging, and then its subsequent actual breaking is not at all the same thing. There's no lineage there that's being broken. There's no, you know, there's a... The the, the reforging of Anglachel into Gurthong is a result of the sword being made less useful, and that may or may not be connected with the fact that it was used to kill Beleg, who was its proper owner at the time. May or may not be related to that. I think... I suspect there may be some connection there, but that's kind of a hard inference to really prove. 
the reforging does not represent anything about the restoration of anything. It's actually more like this is changing owners. It's a break. It's a new thing for a new person. It's actually kind of, again, the opposite of what the history of Narsil is, even though it's parallel. And then when it breaks, ultimately, at the end of Turin's life, at the end of the story in which it's a part, whereas when Narsil breaks, it's kind of at the beginning of the story, in a sense, when that happens, the breaking represents the end, not not a you know, a break in the line, which will be, you know, ultimately restored, but a, a final conclusory, this is it, this sword ain't doing nothing no more, it's too dangerous, we're done. Turin falls on it, breaks it, and they're like, okay, we're going to bury that sword with him. It, Yeah, it can just stay in the ground. So, you know, the way these two things function symbolically in the story are actually very different, and so you can't really draw any inferences about what the purpose of having this sword is in two different places that look the same and because they serve very different purposes. Nevertheless, it's the same motif. So, you know, this is, again, going back to my point earlier, this is an example of Tolkien's genius. He can take one idea and use it in two very radically different contexts and make it mean two very different things. It's just a cool motif which he manages to mean, make mean two different things. And it's it's absolutely genius when you look at it. And this is why you wouldn't necessarily think of the two things as parallel unless you really just start thinking about them both in your head. So, you know, that's kind of the lessons we can learn from this is, you know, you can reuse material in ways which is really amazing, which doesn't even seem like recycling if you do it right and cleverly enough. And that's, you know, that's that I don't mean clever in a like a underhanded clever. I mean like legitimately really good at what you do clever. But the other lesson is we shouldn't be looking at things like this parallels in Tolkien stories and going, okay, why is he doing that? What's the psychoanalytic reason behind what he does? And, you know, I've done some psychoanalytic type stuff on Tolkien before where I've talked about for example, father figures in his life and in his stories, because there do seem to be some interesting parallels there. But there you can actually draw really direct comparisons between his own life and the stories he's writing. Here, we don't really have anything that would make us think that there's something overarching that makes this important outside the context of their own stories. And I even admitted when I did that earlier, and I can link to that video in the description below too, I admitted in that video that this is you know, somewhat dangerous to wander into the territory of psychoanalyzing Tolkien. But the evidence there, I think, is so overwhelming that you almost have to draw some of those conclusions. So at any rate, that is the the interesting history of broken swords in Tolkien and how they get used and why, it, for what purposes we can use them in terms of analyzing the story and also the purposes for which maybe we should not analyze, you know, Tolkien's psychoanalyze, you know, Tolkien in, in, in other ways. So I hope you enjoyed that video. Hope you found that a really interesting look at two very famous swords. If you can think of other ways that I have not mentioned here that they are parallel or very opposite of parallel, then, you know, mention those in the comments. There's probably others that I have forgotten because there's so much history to both weapons. 
But uh, yeah, please do leave those in the comments. Please give the video a thumbs up. Share it around. Subscribe either on YouTube or Rumble or Odyssey or subscribe to the podcast versions. You can also follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore. And you can support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namariye. No